Well, the girls in New Jersey, what the fuck this one? You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. I'm Vic Singh, and I'd like you to imagine the city of your choice, perhaps Newark. It's dusk. There's a lone basketball court tucked away in the corner of some park where there's one guy shooting threes, getting his own rebounds, attempting dream shake moves like Olajuwon in the block, then murmuring, three, two, one, right before throwing up buzzer-beating prayers. That's me again today. Sadly, I had groupthink in the bag until about the 11th hour. But like Junior said about Richie, I couldn't fucking sell it. But enough with the Hoop Dreams 2019 reboot over here. Let's begin our rigorous inquiry into watching too much television, which clearly I have, as well as an equal amount of situational late-stage fourth-quarter basketball games. Ten seconds left, you're down by two. Who are you going to give the ball to in today's NBA? I'd probably go with Damian Lillard. Let me know if you agree or disagree. Okay, let's do this. The seventh episode of season four of my lifeline. I mean, The Sopranos. The teleplay was written by Terrence Winter and Nick Santora. Story credits went to Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, Terrence Winter, and David Chase. The episode was directed by John Patterson. A lot of cooks in this kitchen. A heavily charged episode with political, racial, social, emotional and economic undercurrents. It originally aired on October 27th, 2002. HBO synopsis, Tony and the gang throw Polly a bada-bing bash after his release from jail. But it doesn't take long for old tensions to resurface. Carmela's cousin Brian throws out a hypothetical investment scenario that Tony and Ralph attempt to turn into reality with the help of Assemblyman Zellman and a black community leader. The title watching too much television. There's a lot of TV in this episode, thanks to Aid. And many of the elements of this Sopranos episode oozed TV. That word is top of mind because I've been listening to King Cruel's The Ooze while working this week. The episode starts on a black screen. Note the sound design creative choice here. We hear voices, drinks clinking, then the black screen moves to reveal Polly. What do you hear? What do you say? He's out of the can on the show. In real life, it appears Tony Sirico's back is strong enough for the demands of being a series regular on a TV show. He's wearing his Sunday best, a nice contrast to the orange prison uniform we've somehow all of a sudden gotten used to. Tony's among the first to greet him. First Tony says it, then Ali Boy Beresi does. It's an intentional reminder of the signature Beresi character trait, namely repeating back things heard or said verbatim. A great little throwback reference. Almost sounds like the record repeats itself if you don't understand what just happened. Another thought that comes to mind is that it plays on the theme that Ali Boy is a yes man. Remember back in season two, he wouldn't dare play on Team Richie when he was angling to take out Tony? Vito asks, What can I get you, Paulie? Get the four months inside. How about late? 
<laughs> Gotta say, it's too classic that Vito is the one who initiated that question and got that response. Let's just leave that there for now. If you know, you know, but let's not spoil it for the first-timers. Sill says, Oh, it's Papillon. Oh, hello, Sill, how are you? That means butterfly. Maybe that's an inside thing they have together as a moniker about his wingtips. But more likely than not, it's a reference to the 1973 movie of the same name that's about a man serving out a prison term. The movie starring Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman was based on the novel Papillon, which came out in 1969. The film was remade in 2017, and McQueen and Hoffman were replaced by Charlie Hunnam and Rami Malek. The book actually looks incredible, and after preparing this episode, I'm determined to read it. So everyone toasts Polly. Silvio cues the song Nancy with the Laughing Face by Frank Sinatra, and Polly comes undone a little. Duran Duran over here. The song was originally written for a woman named Bessie. The writer-composer duo that created the song swapped Bessie with whoever they happened to be singing the song for across the birthday circuit. Apparently, Frank Sinatra heard the version performed with Nancy and came undone himself. And the rest is history. The Frank Sinatra version is purportedly about his daughter, Nancy. And the link to it being Polly's song, however tenuous, is that Polly doesn't have kids. And perhaps that song triggers that void in his life. Next, we get some great comic relief from Bobby. What the fuck? Why is this his song? I'm with Bobby personally. And if we're limiting the scope to just Frank Sinatra songs, Polly feels more like a witchcraft kind of guy. Satanic black magic. Sick shit. Or maybe the lady is a tramp. She's a malignant cunt. Or finally, a man alone. Marriage and I think don't jive. Okay, Brian. We get a lot of Brian this episode. Brian gets a little too comfortable with Polly. Hey, don't get. So, uh, just back from college, huh? College or school in general can be a euphemism for prison in certain circles. And this seems to be the intent here, which made Polly's reaction a little odd. He could have just laughed it off. But perhaps if he knew what Cousin Brian meant, he didn't like being disrespected by a young guy. Yeah, let's chalk it up to that. It's a little bit like the way a rookie gets no respect from a vet, no matter how bad they get crossed up. I was just near Philly, so a rookie, Allen Iverson, badly crossing up MJ, comes to mind. YouTube it. Enough with the pleasantries and sentimental shit. Tony and Polly get right down to business. We learn Polly got out because someone copped to the gun. Who? When? Why? Get out your Deadwood prospecting tools. Get Ellsworth on the phone or telegraph. There's backstory gold in there somewhere, coursing through the Youngstown tributaries or sewer pipes. Escape at Danamora over here. T hands him an envelope to get back on his feet, which made me wonder, what's a satisfactory amount to get back on your feet? 10000 20000 Less? And moreover, while he's in the can, aren't bills and expenses taken care of by the family? 
at least the basics. Creditors, lenders, and public utilities, after all, don't care that you're in jail, right? So rather than expressing gratitude, like our Instagram feeds remind us to every day, Polly dives into how he feels he should have had help while he was in the can, too. Kind of feels like he's saying, too little, too late, Tony. And Tony's expression and response echoes exactly what we're thinking. Well, you went back here 30 seconds. You already got a fistful of cash, not to mention the no-show jobs I got for you. And it also strengthens the disconnect between them. We've been saying all along that their relationship isn't trending in the right direction. It's been evident when they're communicating with others behind the back. But here it's obvious when they're face-to-face. An interesting cauldron pot is brewing. At this point in our journey with the show, we're trained to always wonder, whose time is up? Is this the beginning of the end for Polly? Later, Tony enjoys watching Brian have a good time. Almost acknowledging to us viewers that even the most straight and narrow, buttoned up guy will trend towards vice when it's placed right in front of him. In this case, in the form of a perfectly sculpted breast with no strings attached. If this were House of Cards or Fleabag even, Tony would have looked right into the camera at us. Meanwhile, Adriana's watching a courtroom drama, Murder One, while flossing. She's essentially auditing an evidence course in law school. But isn't there some law about testifying against your husband? Excuse me? Richard and I were married night before last in Reno. Your Honor, the defense requests a conference in chambers. We'll stand in recess for 15 minutes while the court confers with counsel. The score. It's from the show she's watching, but it fits the tenor of our show perfectly. Note that even Cosette is watching. She's all in on Team Moltisanti. I love the little detail of Aid's hard pull on the tooth. The sound design of the little pop. To drive home that she's letting all of this bake in. Also note how the camera starts wide, but moves up close on her. Very traditional television. In an episode that's titled, Watching Too Much Television. Cut back to Cousin Brian, passed out on the Bing dance floor, slowly coming to. Tony also wakes up moments later from an elevated perch. He tells Brian to get ready for some breakfast. Ralphie comes out of the men's room and chimes, Aspetta, I'll go with you. Aspetta means wait in Italian, an expression worthy of the fine suit Ralphie was repurposing for a second day of use in a row. So, Tony, Ralph, and Brian are at a diner. Note the jukebox. Also, note we're trained on Tony's 3 o'clock. The real location was a place called Al's Diner in Jersey City on Communipa Avenue. Sadly, it closed a few years ago. Something about a divorce. Brian quotes Will Rogers. By land, I guess. God ain't making any more of it. That's a Will Rogers said. The actual quote from Will Rogers is, By land, they ain't making more of the stuff. Rogers, of course, was an actor, comedian, and writer. He was at one point the mayor of Beverly Hills and ran for president in 1928 as a kind of joke. 
promising to resign if he actually won. Who knew that might one day make for an interesting precedent? Okay, so the breakfast club over here, consisting of Tony, Ralph, and Brian, start discussing a Fugazi mortgage loan scam. Brian parlays that to a more elaborate scam involving HUD, a program designed to help low-income families become homeowners. HUD, or the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, is part of the executive branch of government and was created by the Johnson administration in 1965. In the 90s, there was a big HUD scandal, whereby several hundred houses in Brooklyn were sold for profit by real estate speculators who took the loans but didn't need them. HUD was cited for lax oversight, almost as if they were in on it. Overstated property appraisals were one of many areas of abuse within the program. This is all to say that the timing of Brian's scheme and Tony's application of it in his own affairs was newsy, topical, and factually accurate. Brian begins to explain the scheme. The grand finale of the scheme, though, the crux of it, is inaudible to us. Instead, we get a wide frame from outside. We're on Tony's 9 o'clock. And immediately behind him, there's a man reading a paper at the diner counter. Remember that. Somewhat deja vu. The choice to cut the scheme conversation short is interesting. We see them still having it, but we're watching from outside. Maybe it's the feds. Maybe it's someone else. Watching. Listening. Waiting. Next, Furio drops Tony off. Tony tells him he's going to be a while. Note the compass in the car displays Northwest, NW. It's on Furio's forehead. And it's worth noting because we know how Furio feels about the North, namely Genoa, in Northwest Italy. In Napoli, a lot of people are not so happy for Columbus because he was from Genoa. What's the problem with Genoa? The North of Italy always have the money and the power. They punish the South in hundreds of years. Even today, they put up their nose at us like we're peasants. I hate the North. Take it easy. This is also an uncommon exchange or scene transition that we've never seen before. Usually Tony gets dropped off and that's the end of it. But here, it nicely sets up the space for Furio to have a moment with Carmela, right under Tony's nose. Or maybe thumb is more appropriate, as we see Furio rifle through photos. I always get hung up on the visual of Tony crossing the street. It's so vibey. The rain, the taxi, the cold. Note how he checks his three o'clock. I can't help but see a little midnight cowboy in there somewhere. Back on Furio, he's frantically looking for his stash of pictures. Very akin to Ginny Sack and her candy stash, he needs to get his Carmela fix. Seven episodes into season four, the guy's having serious withdrawal. We see Tony walk into a Russian bathhouse. The relocation is a place in Queens, near 44th Drive and 23rd Street. He's meeting up with Assemblyman Zellman, Ralph, and Maurice, played by actor Vondi Curtis Hall. We learn that Tony and Maurice were practically neighbors back in the day, someplace around 6th and Orange. Nice location context for the upcoming movie. Back on Furio, frantic, he calls Carmela. Note that he seemingly has her number on speed dial, 
The pretense of his call is that he can't find his sunglasses, but just moments ago we saw him holding them and placing them in the glove box. Very relatable mischief either way you look at it. Those moments where we make up whatever excuse we can to get close to somebody. Also, saying glove box made me realize how antiquated that word is today and how fucking old I am. Apologies to anyone that still drives with gloves and stows them in their designated space. Back on Carmen Furio, they're making small talk. She calls him Fuhr. Fucking Partridge family over here. She doesn't really look for the sunglasses either. I mean, did he really lose them in some crease of their family room couch? When has he ever sat there for an extended period of time? Perhaps in her dreams. Back in the bathhouse, this new collection of friends and guys from the old neighborhood are talking about the summer of 67. More movie fodder. Maurice and Zellman were buds back then, too. Then later went to Michigan together. That actually made me jealous. There's a couple of friends from elementary school I wish I'd stayed close with, like Ronnie and Mo did. I like everything about the two of them. Short of scamming federal agencies, though. Tony mentions the Newark riots. What a fucking summer that was. Anthony Imperiali, the White Knight, is mentioned. He was a Newark-born state senator who opposed desegregation. And during the Newark riots, advocated for armed white self-defense. He later lost a Newark mayoral bid. He was known by his inner circle as Tough Tony. And there's a famous image of him wielding a baseball bat to defend his neighborhood from rioters. Joe DiMaggio over here. The conversation transitions to the Urban Housing League, Maurice's new thing, a nonprofit that's fallen on hard times, thanks in part, he says, to a Republican administration. That got me wondering what effect do Republican administrations have on nonprofits? Turns out, Republican administrations and Democratic ones too can exert influence on nonprofits through the tax code. Without getting too in the weeds on this, though you know I'd love to, eliminating the ability for most taxpayers to itemize their deductions effectively eliminates any tax benefits of donating to public charities or 501c3 organizations, as they're formally known. When there's no incentive to donate, predictably, donations drop, and these nonprofits become insolvent. A recent strategy has been to convert 501c3 organizations into 501c4 social welfare organizations. The difference between C3 and C4 is the ability to lobby and operate in furtherance of more politicized activities. The trade-off is the deductibility of donations. But if most donations are non-deductible because of partisan tax policy, it's moot. And the C4 entity can operate in a climate more in line with the majority political framework of its time. Okay, enough with the Ginsburg CLE and on to the Neil Mink CLE. Before Ralph gets too in the weeds, Tony leaves. Always timely, always strategic. Plausible deniability. Imagine Mink sitting atop his perch like Yoda, watching young Skywalker Soprano work out his force kinks in the Dagobah system. Do or do not. 
There is no try. Ralph is running point on this venture. He's selecting Dr. Freed, the poker-playing urologist, as the front man for this operation. The power forward, if you will. The plan is they're going to buy up four houses in the old first ward, Garside Street, for around 125 k apiece. The first ward was a neighborhood in Newark founded by Italian immigrants in the 1890s. And speaking of Joe DiMaggio, there's a connective tissue to all of this. He loved the food there so much, he used to take Yankee players out of the city to eat there. Also, Joe Pesci and Frankie Valli were products of the North Ward. Joe Pesci's character, of course, shot Michael Imperioli's character in the foot in Goodfellas. And Frankie Valli makes an appearance on The Sopranos down the line. So once the houses are snapped up, a crooked appraiser will reappraise them in the 300K range. But why not more? The degree of their criminality and greed is subjective. I say, swing for the fences, especially if there's a fall guy. Maurice would then take the phony appraisals to HUD, where he'll say his nonprofit, the Urban Housing League, wants to buy these houses and create low-cost housing for needy families. If everything plays out as planned, HUD will guarantee the mortgage application, Maurice will go to the bank, they'll cut a check, and this chain gang will share on the spoils with an extortionately high disproportionate share going to Tony and Ralph. Because what are Maurice and Ron going to do? Maurice's line... Sounds about right. ...is the perfect response here. Ron fills in the blanks on what Cousin Brian began to tell us back at Al's Diner. The Urban Housing League will fail to make the mortgage payments. At which point I assume my organization fails to make the mortgage payments. Unforeseen construction delays and repeated vandalism force the project into dissolution. We all walk away from the houses. Your cut will be in the 10% of the profit range. My office will write a letter in strong support of your application. The way Zellman waltzes through the details and intricacies of this makes it sound like this isn't his first rodeo. It makes his 10% definitely feel about right, especially if he's got four to five similar scams happening concurrently. And later, Tony points out how smart he is. University of Michigan. So it only furthers the narrative. But maybe, just maybe, he's not smart enough. Outside in the locker room, Zellman tells Tony about Arena. At first it was okay. Or so it seemed. But his, I care for her, was pointed. Almost sparring-like. Not in the words themselves, but in the forward motion his body shifts when he says it. Plus his eyes. Everything's in the eyes, right? In a sense, he's telling Tony, I'm doing for her what you couldn't. And who wants to hear that? Especially right to their face. The nail in the coffin, roll tape. The heart wants what the heart wants, I guess. This is a classic example of know when to shut up. The reason this is fatalistic for Zellman is now he's got Tony thinking about it more than he already might have. Who's to say for sure, right? But he's definitely not doing himself any favors. Maurice comes in to provide some karaoke relief. Singing the shy lights, oh girl. Cutting right through all that room tension like a knife. Tony and Maurice start talking about labels. Labels. 
Maurice says the Shylights were signed to the same label as Tommy James and the Shondells. Tony disagrees, says the Shylights were on Brunswick. Abbott and Costello over here. Tony's right. And note how Maurice seemed a little perturbed by Tommy James and the Shondells. Like Tony when he explained to AJ that it was Antonio Meucci, not Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone. Antonio Meucci invented the telephone and he got robbed. Tommy James and the Shondells are still going strong, by the way. And Stephen Van Zandt inducted Tommy James into the New Jersey Hall of Fame in 2017. Originally from Michigan, James moved to Clifton, New Jersey back in the 70s. Of significance to the Sopranos, their label, Roulette, had mob ties. And the head of the label was the inspiration for Hesh. This led me to believe that Maurice could have been flexing his mob trivia, while Tony simultaneously flexed his soul music street cred, ultimately bringing the two of them closer together in the end. It's always better to find common ground and like who you're about to partner with to scam the federal government. Note that while Tony's talking to Zellman and Maurice, the number three locker appears on Tony's three o'clock. Anyone else see Clay Thompson around here? All these threes coming in sudden bursts and spurts. Back to Zellman. Tony downplays this news about Arena, but his eyes, once again, are menacing. It's all in the eyes. He lands a jab for a jab. Frankly, I'm glad she's off my payroll, he says. Vanquishing Zellman down to an atomic particle. She was Tony's sex for hire, and nothing more than that. And Tony's already been there and done that. What a politically correct yet simultaneously devastating way to let Zellman know. Cut to the quick Sopranos-y scene of Dr. Freed signing the paperwork to become the legal owner of shit boxes in the old first ward. Eat my dust, Donald Trump. We're back on aid. She's looking at birthday cards. The card she's actually looking at reads rule number 35, dogs are friendly. The number 35 got me curious. The 35th episode of The Sopranos was Telltale Muzadel. The episode aid is gifted the crazy horse by Christopher. And it's just worth noting because that was a great moment between them. And they're about to go to a dark place momentarily. Aid walks right into Agent San Severino. She's probing, suspicious, kind of rude, actually. She's not playing the game as well as Agent Waldrop. But you can really see the machine start cranking when Aid mentions marriage. Cut to Tony and AJ in the car, coming back from a fishing trip, it looks like. Nice to hear AJ feel strongly about something, in this case, the ocean, the mighty ocean, the perfect thing to overcome or cope with existential angst. Note the missing headrests on both seats. Wonder if that was a production thing. Easier camera angles, maybe? Tony drives AJ to a church, the same church he goes inside with Meadow way back in season one, in the pilot, I believe, St. Patrick's Church in Jersey City. And he essentially starts off giving the same speech he gave to Meadow. AJ has a nice moment here, responding to Tony about all the many Italians that come here to pray. Every Sunday, Italians from the old neighborhood, they drive miles to come here to pray, to keep this place alive. That's how come we never do. Tony doesn't know quite what to do with that one. 
the cloak covering his hypocrisy is yanked right off. A single sentence from his teenage son is enough to unsettle him. David Chase famously articulates the hypocrisy of things through this show. And what better way to showcase it than through generational disconnect? On the one hand, Tony's talking about values and giving a shit and building things and doing things that matter, but then he gets derailed, and the best he can do is misquote Brian Camerata. Buy land, AJ, because God ain't making any more of it. Note the Puma jumpsuit AJ's wearing, a costume design achievement in letting us momentarily envision AJ as a torchbearer to Tony's throne. Tony takes off in a huff, and it's revealed that they're in the projects. There's a great contextual visual of the lingering background shot as the Suburban pulls away. Two black guys walking into and through the frame, church bells ringing, our realization of what once was and what's taking shape. An intentional lingering frame, a deep breath of sorts, committing us to this new place, allowing a moment to process how old neighborhoods change over time. I know, another fucking sociology report over here. We go from row houses to houses, but we're still in a rough neighborhood. AJ plays up that he's comfortable in this environment, probably on account from a previous episode that he drove through rough parts of New York City whilst in a private black car en route to a Pillsbury safe house. Tony tangles with the locals, a brother and sister crack dealer combo. Evidently users of their own product, too. Walter White would have a thing or two to say about that. No chance that's happening in his distribution supply chain. Level up moment for Tony for maintaining his composure. Therapy's working. He brushed direct obscenities hurled at him off his shoulder like Jay-Z. And AJ's amused. You get the sense he looks up to his dad here. Like he's tough and cool. Again, Is he starting to want this life? Is his clay starting to mold in Tony's image? Maybe not so fast. So that's a crack hole. Cut from Starsky and Hutch to FBI headquarters. Agents Kubatoso, Harris, San Severino, and Waldrop. Great cut. The writing here is like a perfectly topped combo pizza. There isn't a spot on the pie where a topping isn't perfectly placed. A custom job in every sense of the expression. My pizza never hurt nobody. As he bites into a burger, Agent Harris says, Moltisanti's a great catch. Tall, dark, and sociopathic. (laughs) When Kubatoso says, from a strategic standpoint, I love the choice to pull wide and long on the four of them for this part of the dialogue. The symmetry of the frame is outstanding. Remember Angel Diletto? That's my Netflix limited series title. The Untold Story. Narrated by Matt Servito while noshing on a burger. Practically pitches itself, you guys. Maybe Darwin was right. Nature really does weed out the Nimrods. Great line as he wipes ketchup off his tie. Long story short here, the feds support the nuptials. Agreed then. They have our blessing. To the happy couple. Cut from one federal agency to another. HUD. Maurice and the HUD agent seemingly swap cultural references. One Day at a Time is another subtle reference to watching too much television. It was a sitcom from the 70s and 80s that recently got rebooted by Netflix. 
And Keep On, Keepin' On is a song from the 60s by folk artist Len Chandler. The song was quoted in a Martin Luther King speech that, if intentional, is very on point for the subject matter of this episode. Also, for the autopsy remembrance portion of the show, I love his close observation of the left-handed check marks on the loan paperwork, suggesting the whole thing just isn't right. The scheme is backwards, in other words, and furthers the regressive decline of inner cities, one of the very things HUD was envisioned to protect against. Next, note the transition from Tony leaving the projects with drug dealers and gangbangers on the streets in the backdrop to suburbia, with some corpulent residents trotting in the middle of the street for a late morning jog. Stark hypocrisy on display through razor-sharp editing. It's revealed through the car in the driveway that he's checking in on Ron Zellman. The real location of Zellman's townhouse is on a street called Lapis Circle in West Orange. The camera locks on Zellman's car for a moment. We see his license plate. I also caught Serbo BPG, Boonton, New Jersey. True story. I talked to that store once on the phone for a dealer trade back when I was in the car business. So, Zellman's Habitat. Guy lives in a townhome. He's got an upright piano with Chopin sheet music front and center, next to a cart with Black Label and various other spirits and a combination of bottles and decanters. Impromptu meetings with stiff drinks are nothing new to this guy. He opens the door. Note how he checks outside before closing the door. Love that little detail. Zellman is freaked the fuck out. Is this the end for him? Where are the Nest Cams when you need them? It really would have been better if we met over at Denny's. What are you worried about? Is that the venue of choice for clandestine meetings of the corrupt variety? Brief Denny's aside, I miss my midnight undergrad runs to Denny's for their big Texas chicken fajita skillets. Circa 2000, after long hours bawling out on the rough-and-tumble, on-campus, outdoor basketball courts in La Jolla, California. Actually played against Doug Flutie once. Guy could ball. Three wide receivers out to the right. Flutie flushed. Throws it down. Boston College. I don't believe it. It's a touchdown. The Eagles win it. Unbelievable. Notice how Tony checks out the artwork on the walls. Probably wondering which one of those paintings is a fucking scam. He sees Arena's little red shoes, imagery of which could be the cover of a book, and starts to go through one of his panic attack episodes. At least the early stages of one. So Tony's complaining about the squatters, but is interrupted by Arena. She walks in, stops the show. It's been a while, this beacon of light. Tony's eyes well up a bit, but he tries to hold it together. And as a viewer, it really makes you realize the balls of Zellman at this point. I mean, of all the girls in North Jersey, right? Arena looks down at her hand almost as a signal that there's no ring on it. Something about the way it was framed suggested that. I'm still yours if you want me, Tony. She scoots off to make an egg salad for lunch, easy on the mayo, and Ron tries to give Tony his drink, 
but when he sees him gazing at Arena as she walks away, he quickly flips 180 and puts the drink down. Very telling. It's super subtle, and you have to look at it twice to catch it. But it's a wonderful example of brilliant acting without dialogue. He gets in to talk about squatters' rights. The official legal term is adverse possession. It's the legal permission to use the property of another when the owner doesn't timely evict. And depending on state law, the squatter can actually take title to the property over a long enough stretch of time. Ron tells Tony it's going to be okay. Live and let live. But Tony course corrects him on a dime. See, that's why you're a politician and not a businessman. Maximum value is the big picture. Come on, Ronnie. What a dig. It's a nickname, yes, but it's more than that. By miniaturizing his name, he's separating the men from the boys in the room. The captains of industry from the political pawn hacks. Come on, Ronnie. University of Michigan. Fuck, I'll figure it out. Tony boils all this down to about 7K of copper pipes. And it's coming out of someone's end if it isn't taken care of. Was it really about the 7K, though? Or was this just some way to see for himself what's going on with Arena? Likely both, perhaps. Cut to Chris and Aid. Certainly one of the most powerful scenes in the entire series. She wants to get married. Chris is in a state of shock, despite being engaged for the better part of two years. Let's just go down to City Hall. City Hall? What are we, schwugs? That's a derogative term for black people. Interestingly, Chris associates marriage with a kid. Not unreasonable. But she immediately changes. We know why. But is Chris finally going to find out why, too? What if we didn't have kids? Fuck that. What's the point of being married? I mean, what if we can't? If I can't? Aid tells Chris. A long time ago, years ago, I had a medical procedure. It was before we met. My uterus got pierced. Both of them? There's only one. The comedy amidst the horror is almost too much here. You knew you were damaged goods and you never fucking told me? That line is so powerful that it actually transcends analysis and I think is worthy instead of silent reflection. It pierces you every time you hear it. And the delivery? Christopher's urgency in delivering that blow to Adriana? It's like the ultimate counterpunch more powerful than any physical contact. It cuts through bone. Christopher tries to explain. You don't get it, Adriana. I don't have a son. The Moltisanti name ends. That's it. We could have died. Yeah, that's great. Some kid with chinky eyes called Moltisanti. He get his ass kicked every day. Very interesting reveal here. The new school, contrarian... One foot out the door, heir apparent, made guy. It's actually very traditional in a primal sense. But wait, there's more. You said you'd still love me. That doesn't mean I'll fucking marry you. We were already down on the mat. Almost to a 10 count. Just about to get up and see this episode through. And then this haymaker. To quote Adrian in Rocky Three, Stop down. the fight! Jesus H. Christ. 
All this after eight put together a great candlelit dinner. Makes you think about the fights we can sometimes erupt into despite the most benign and regular of circumstances. It's a great scene in that it showcases an underlying truth we all share and can relate to. Everything we know or take for granted as true can be upturned in seconds. AIDS left shattered, and so are we. The romance we rooted for since day one, our fucking royal family, royal wedding, looks to suddenly be over. Chris goes to confide in Tony and Silvio. She's a great girl, Christopher. You don't want to lose this one. Hold on to that for later. And by that I mean, Tony's suggesting this is as good as it gets for Christopher. Silvio, very consigliere-like. You could have more kids than the Kennedys. If you're married to some twat, what good is it? Tony chimes back in. These two guys are like hauling oats over here. Medicine today. Technology. Fucking internet. Sorry, too easy. Polly asks if uh, Christopher wants his advice. And the lag in response and the look says it all. Not really. But Christopher takes a sip of his drink and looks over indifferently. Stay single as long as you can. Oh, come on. What are you saying? Oh, no offense. But ask me, marriage and I think don't jive. The Oracle of Omaha over here. Note Polly's sweater. Looks like prison bars. So Chris assimilates all this information from the three wise men and says he needs to go think about it. Cut to his Range Rover, with drugs and cigarettes scattered everywhere inside. He wakes up, sucks his arm where the needles were, concealing evidence like a confident pro as always, Emil Kolar, Barry Haydu, and now his own arm tracks. When he takes off and almost gets into an accident, note the off-kilter stop sign a subtle indication that it's too late to turn back now. It's too late to turn back now. I believe, I believe, I believe I'm falling in love. Zellman pays a visit to Maurice at his house, to Browning Court in Roseland. Zellman comes in talking like Tony to Mo. Shit goes downhill, right? Maurice wants no piece of violence, but Zellman makes it clear the problem's now his to deal with. How about you take the 7000 this is costing out of your end, then? Oh, come on. You know what I pay in child support to my first wife? The chances I'm taking with this thing? I'm putting it all on the line if I get caught. So you get some kids, gangbangers, whatever, you throw them some money. When you think about it from a policing standpoint, it's just one group of recidivists beating on another. Stop trying to justify it, Ron. It's about the seven grand. Let me tell you something else. Guys like Tony, you don't fool around with these people. The message is clear. It's your problem or it comes out of your end. If you even survive this. Final quick note on this. Maurice mentions a guy named Eldridge Cleaver. A Black Panther. Who, among other things, is credited with creating virility pants. Or cod pieces. Think jockstrap and cup, but outside your pants instead of inside and tucked away. Pun intended. From jockstraps 
in virility pants, we go to Dr. Melfi's office. Tony's getting into stuff about his son, but she turns the table and wants to address his recent behavior, namely his reaction to Gloria's death. She was unimpressed with the FTD bouquet. Had it been another bouquet, say Teleflora or 1-800-Flowers, might it have been enough? We'll never know. Tony says, I never laid a finger on you, to which she responds, You loomed. Great characterization. What follows is one of Dr. Melfi's greatest moments. I look. I know what I did was wrong, okay? And you may not believe this, but I did exercise impulse control, and I have been controlling my anger. This thing with my son, I went to show him the old neighborhood, and we got accosted by these crackheads. One of them had a gun, and the other one threw a bottle at my car. Now, it may not sound like much, but I let it go. I drove away. Well, in the future, I'll ask that you extend to me the same courtesy you would a crack addict. Tony's reaction is similar to the way AJ's line about prayer landed. First, the punch lands, and then he thinks, gee, that was pretty good. Then he brings up Wendy Cobbler, more tying to the past. Of course, that's the shrink that almost sent Meadow to Barcelona. Not only does Tony, by his own admission, have the sense of humor of an eight-year-old boy, that's coming up, stay tuned, but also he has to one-up everyone in whatever way possible. In this episode, both responses to AJ and Melfi are non-sequitur declarative statements. Last word-worthy statements. Chris returns, says he wants to give this a try. He loves her, and he seems genuine. Fast cut to Carmen Abe. Vegas? Want to get married by some Elvis impersonator? would save money at least. No, it's a sacrament aid. Why don't we have it here? All your friends could come. Yeah. Does your mother know yet? You're the first person I've told. We'll decorate the whole house with mums. Okay, married. Cut from wedding planning to druggies in the old first ward. Kids pull up with guns. <laughs> Remember, just shoot the ceiling and shit. No 187. 187 is, of course, slang for murder based on the California Penal Code section. Sopranos goes wire for a minute, but no second sighting of Omar, sadly. We see a disturbing and powerful image of a little girl watching her mother smoke crack, and Angelo, the drug dealer who gets into it with Tony earlier in the episode, gets hit by a stray bullet, right in the crotch. If only he had had one of Eldridge's protective cod pieces. Cut to a bank exterior. Maurice and the urologist Strawman are signing papers. Against the backdrop of a banner reading, we are moving forward, America. Dr. Freed gets a check for $1.3 million, and Maurice's nonprofit is the new owner. Cut to Cousin Brian visiting Tony in his basement. Tony gives him a Paddock Philippe watch. Paddock has had tremendous staying power. As of 2019, it's still considered the top luxury watch brand over Audemars, JLC, Rolex, IWC, Panerai, and many others. 
Brian was shocked to learn Tony actually followed through on the real estate scheme that was mentioned at the diner. He was concerned about the ethics of profiting off the American taxpayer. But Tony quickly shoots it down. And the American taxpayers... The American money. taxpayers who pay for airport security, look how well that's going. Give me a fucking break. In my best Darth Vader voice, Brian's dark side skills are now complete. All it took was a timepiece and a referendum on airport security to buy into Tony's worldview. Oh, and a power drill. Without blinking an eye, Brian lies to Carm, says he's just borrowing some tools to hang stuff on the wall. But he's a bad liar, a remnant of his innocence. He's not fully tainted yet, but she's onto his carousel of transformations and lies. But sadly, her look says it all. What am I going to do about it? Moments later, Carm opens the door for Furio. But there's no butterflies, no flowers, no music this time. Furio's different. We still get that slow pan of him as the door opens, but he's reticent and won't come inside. The way Carm moves her mouth is so interesting. She's broken. Furio says the engine is acting funny. More like his heart. Then he says he needs to keep his foot on the pedal. That felt like him saying he needs to keep moving. To not stop and think. Because if he does, this could end badly for him. He too, like Christopher, is ignoring that off-kilter stop sign seen a few minutes earlier. In an acting masterclass, Carmela can barely stand after closing the door but she pulls it together in a nanosecond. Amazing to watch every time because you feel for her, and most people can't pull it together. Not that quickly. Her morning is shattered, but nobody knows it but her. And well, maybe Tony Rich. And I'm dying inside And nobody knows it Cut to a beautiful day in Brooklyn and a great view of Lower Manhattan. Johnny Sack and Polly are having lunch at the River Cafe in Brooklyn. Real place still exists. Polly says to Johnny, I'll tell you, the shit you miss when you're inside. Emphasis that Polly says that to Johnny. It's prescient. Hang on to it. Next, notice the framing of the Brooklyn Bridge. It's closer to Polly than it is to Johnny. There's a bit of symbolism there, that Polly is gravitating towards New York, or that Brooklyn is looming over him, to use Dr. Melfi's word from a few scenes ago. Fuck it, Tony. Four months I'm up there like the man in the Iron Mask. Not one visit. Not even a fucking phone call. Guy didn't reach out at all. John, when do I have a complaint? That's rich. More like, when do you not complain? Right? Polly continues. I'm sucking wind, and he's rolling in it with that fucking Christ killer. Hesh? Fucking Zellman. Fucking real estate scam. You're feeling eyes in the avenue thing. We had some words. Tony made it right. It's a different one now. Sucking wind is a slang reference for struggling. 
I love how Johnny thought he had a handle on the real estate deal. But Polly says it's a different one now. Note how Johnny thought he was on top of it until he heard different one. He stops listening to Polly right then and there, and he's quietly unraveling. This shit don't leave the table, right? I'm hurt that you even have to ask. Gotta say, Polly's old school. He should know better. This isn't doctor-patient confidentiality or attorney-client fucking privilege here. For that reason, part of me feels like he wants this. He knows some of this stuff is gonna leak. It has to. And maybe he senses Johnny Sack is loyal and won't reveal sources. So he's pushing the envelope a little. If this were Game of Thrones, though, Tony would have had little birds out in the world and would have known about Polly having a private meeting with Johnny Sack in Brooklyn. Made man or not, like those check marks on the HUD paperwork, this shit ain't right. The aftermath of their conversation features a great array of visual and auditory stimuli. A boat blows by. There's ambient music. Johnny Sachs got these awkward body movements, trying desperately to keep his cool, stay a cut above. Polly's scraping for moose residue, with each scrape wishing himself closer to a box of good implanties. The whole sequence is anxiety-inducing, but brilliant. From the sound design to the constellation of micro-events that are sure to boil over into consequential macro-events. This is merely table-setting for what's to come. Cut to Zellman. He's meeting with constituents and sees Tony drive by. More Tony looming. Next, we see workers yanking copper wire out of the houses. Don't forget the fireplace mantles and the wall sconces. Go downtown to Yuppie's pay top dollar for that shit. We're on it, Tony. Don't worry. Zellman walks over to Tony, but Tony's cold with him from the start. Definitely giving him the cold shoulder. And Zellman knows it. In his mind, he's calculating. How do I overcome this? Then a kid walks up to Zellman and asks if there's going to be a nice house here now. And in that moment, we see signs of regret, reality, jadedness, and indifference all at once. Cut to aid trying on wedding dresses. We've seen this visual before. Think back to the Soprano April wedding between Janice and Richie. Aid is hyping up the fact that a wife can't testify against her husband to everyone that'll listen, revealing her naivete at every turn. But her friend bursts her bubble. Via a murder she wrote episode, she explains, a wife actually can testify. Aid's in a TV misinformation quandary. And there's only one way to settle it. 1-800-LAW-4-U where she gets an education on marital privilege. We learn that anything said before you are married is fair game. If someone else was around when you were talking to your spouse, that's fair game. And any communication that you have with your spouse can't be made in furtherance of a crime. 
it appears that all the boxes here can be checked in Aid's case. Oh my God, it's a simple question. Can they make me testify or not? The short answer? Probably. In an organized crime, Rico, the feds will spend a fortune putting on their case. Believe me, if they want you to testify, they're going to find a way. From the right side of the law, a lawyer's office, we cut to the wrong side of the law, where Ronnie and Mo are getting their payouts at the Bing. There's a little bit of lingering tension between Ronnie and Mo, but they seemingly work it out as they tuck the envelopes into their jackets and head out into a beautiful New Jersey night. You ever feel bad about any of this? What do you mean? When I think about where we started out. You know, I used to think what I did made a difference. The anti-drug programs, the voter drives. But over the years, it's like shoving shit against the tide. You know that. I guess. Yeah, you, you cut corners, but you help out. You do the best you can. Hey, if it ain't us, it's going to be somebody else. Really, I mean, what are we supposed to be, the only honest men? We were going to lead a revolution, Maurice. Revolution. The revolution got sold, Ronnie. You heard the Beatles for our block? The revolution got sold is a great phrase and tie-in to reference the Beatles song, Revolution. And the following lyrics from that song are especially on point here. You say you want a real solution? Well, you know, we'd all love to see the plan. You ask me for a contribution? Well, you know, we're doing what we can. When Maurice mentions the Beatles in the context of H&R Block, he's referring to commercials that aired around 2002, one of which also aired during the Super Bowl, where the Beatles song Taxman was used. Zellman wraps up this scene by saying, Sometimes I feel like I should be punished. Zellman must have read The Secret or something because he's willing himself towards a painful encounter with Tony Soprano. Curiously, he taps his jacket lapel. I've always wondered why. It felt more than a salutational gesture. Something coded, but I'm not sure quite what. Nearby, Tony toasts the federal government. And we hear Ralphie cackling loudly, which merges into women cackling loudly. Nice touch. A bridal shower for Adriana, complete with a sign indicating so, in case it wasn't obvious. Chris's mom. Cappuccino now. He used to drink Bosco. Of course, she's referring to chocolate syrup. Like with Tony, Christopher's still a boy in her eyes. Oh, no, 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 scissors. Bad luck. This, of course, is another Italian superstition that scissors will sever the marriage. Quick fashion aside, what is Aid wearing on her head? I didn't understand then, but now realize it was the inspiration behind Cam Newton's post-game press conference attire a few weeks ago. Adriana's opening up toasters and server plates shaped like leaves. She's kind of underwhelmed. Some music fades in, and we hear the lyric, Baby, you just ain't seen nothing yet. This is her out, or at least should be. If the only reason to marry was to insulate herself from testifying, that shield has been pierced. And Chris, at best, is unstable. She's going to be on eggshells with him from this point forward. What he said to her can't be unsaid, forgiven, forgotten. 
the stench of it will linger and fester for years. But like that scene with her and Carmela in the hallway, the one with the threshold walls closing in on them as they spoke about the wedding, she's boxed in. We know she can't survive Tony and company finding out she's a rat. But maybe she, in her naivete, actually does see a way out. In that moment at the bridal shower, maybe she's planning her great escape. You'll be killed. You know that. Maybe. Please don't do it. Arriving at the end of this episode, we're with Tony in his car, driving, while listening to music, singing alongside, our safe place, with him. First he's happy and bobbing, and then, oh girl comes on. Tony turns up the volume, starts singing along, notice his falsetto. He's being himself, his true self, even if only for a split second. The line, Cause I don't know where to look for love. I just don't know how. Right there, that's what breaks him. His falsetto transitions to a cracked, deep voice. For me, it's always been the harmonica solo. It's refrain. And the little pockets of air in between the notes. What a perfectly constructed song. After all these years, no person can listen to it and keep a straight face. In that moment, he changes course. He goes to Zellman. The shot of the Suburban pulling up and locking on the headlight, and the headlight goes off, subtle and quietly symbolic. It's about to be lights out for Ronnie. The doorbell rings twice. Irina opens. Tony pushes the door open. All this to the lyric, but even the crowd can't help me now. He's in a hurry. The surge of passion catalyzed by the song will wear off soon, like a natural high. The choice to have the camera up close on Zellman with the door in the background was brilliant. Rather than be a fly on the wall, we're floating in the ether, right up close in the airspace. We see Tony enter the same time Zellman does. It helps us sympathize with him in that moment. And the light camera sway is the finishing touch. The weight of Tony's inertia and then his paced, controlled, explosive brutality. Organized chaos. I think that's what they used to call the Ravens' defense when Ray Lewis played. Zellman's in his underwear and asks Tony what's going on. Tony thinks for a moment, breathing heavy, and then removes his belt, the same belt Zellman watched him put on in the bathhouse. As Tony beats him, the music plays. It gets louder, in fact. It's dialed up. A third character in the room. Well, the girls in New Jersey, what the fuck, this one? Go ahead. Cry like a bitch. Tony stands over him like Ali over Liston. 
more looming. Looming over Zelman. Looming over us. Thanks as always for listening. See you next time.